Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, big tech censorship and its attack on civil society, the unconstitutionality of curfews, and saying goodbye to a dear friend. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Glad to have you aboard. Well, it's still possible to do a show, which in the era of big tech censorship is not exactly something we can take for granted. So I'm going to be talking about what's been happening in the last few days at considerable length right now, because big tech censorship, well, it's an issue I, I've talked about in the past. It's not one that I'm just learning about now. It's one that has reached a boiling point that makes it impossible in my view, for anyone who hasn't been paying attention to it to not start doing so right now. The TLDR version of it, the too long didn't read version of it, of course, if you haven't been following this, is that Parler, as of this point, as of when I'm recording, is offline. Parler is the conservative alternative to Twitter and Facebook that was started a little while ago, but really started to surge in popularity in the summer. Parler's offline. Donald Trump is unable to post to social media. Conservative Twitter accounts are hemorrhaging followers by the day. True North has lost a number of followers. I've lost somewhere in the range of 2,000, but it seems to keep going. And a lot of that is because I think a lot of conservatives are, are self-deselecting. They're saying, you know, I don't want to be on Twitter. But a lot of it, the bulk of it, seems to be Twitter going through and just purging, doing a, a conservative purge of accounts that it feels are, are too conservative. And if you, are, if you are like me, someone who's made a, a bit of a name working in conservative media, that's going to very much drop your follower count. So people on the right are losing thousands and thousands. Dana Lash, who I've known for years, she's a tremendous conservative radio host and author in the U.S. She's lost something I think was like 50,000 followers, so I, I suppose I shouldn't complain too, too much. But the whole point of it is that Twitter is quite openly waging war on its right, on the right side of its user base to such an extent that it's not quite clear what the end game is beyond the next couple of weeks. And, and by that, I mean what it's going to look like, not what their goal is. Because Twitter always says it's an open platform, it's a platform built on free speech. But the problem with it is that the actual day-to-day -day operations never look like that. In fact, whenever Twitter is in the news, it's because they've decided to censor someone in, a, in such a way that makes it not look like the open platform that Twitter always pretends to be. Look at, for example, during the most recent U.S. election, the ban of that New York Post story about Hunter Biden, a story that ultimately ended up being proven correct, but you'd never know it with the blackout that Facebook and Twitter both imposed on that story. So right now we had in just rapid succession, a Twitter banned Donald Trump, Facebook banned Donald Trump, Apple take Parler out of the App Store, Google take Parler out of the Google Play Store, and then eventually Amazon Web Services taking Parler offline altogether. And you have five companies, Facebook, Twitter, Google, Apple, and Amazon, that when they work together, can effectively remove someone from the internet. Now, this is not a monopoly in the sense of a state enforced monopoly. It's not a monopoly in the sense that it's more than one, but it's an oligopoly of sorts because of the sheer size of these, not because the state has given them this power. 
And this is where free market libertarians and a lot of traditionalist conservatives tend to diverge on this issue. Because the libertarian perspective, which is the one I've said at a great length on the show in the past, is that, well, you know what, there's nothing stopping someone from building their own alternative. And the build-your-own mentality has always been the biggest saving grace I've felt to conservatives. You don't like liberal Hollywood? Great. Build your own movies. You don't like this singer? Great. Build your own songs. You don't like, well, build, uh, building songs. You can tell why I've not built any songs or sung any songs. You don't like uh, Twitter, Facebook, and their liberal bias? Great. Build your own Twitter. Build your own Facebook. And what we've seen in the last few days is the peril of build your own. Because it doesn't actually work unless you are prepared and able to build your own everything. And this is why it's so easy, and I would say actually justifiable, for people on the right to feel very dejected now. Because Parler was an example, and by the way, Parler had its issues. I, I was on Parler, I still am technically a Parler user, so if Parler ever comes back online, do follow me. If you're ever able to again, which is not quite clear, you will be. Parler had its bugs and its user areas errors, but it was an example of conservatives putting their money where their mouths were and saying, all right, we don't like what Twitter and Facebook are doing. We're building our own. And they had a lot of support. A lot of the conservative heavyweights in conservative media were on parlor. People like Dan Bongino and, and Dana Lash, who I mentioned, and then little old me. And I actually was using it more for just posting stuff that I was posting to Facebook and Twitter. I wasn't boycotting or, or giving up one because I'm a firm believer in the fact that you have to wait and see what happens with these things before you decide to go whole hog into it. And a lot of the people who did do that, a lot of the people who did throw away their Twitter accounts to go to Parler now are, are effectively silenced because of that. So that's a, a bit of an aside, but I, I think a relevant one. So conservatives did what they were always told to do, which was build their own alternative. And now what's happened is Apple has said, all right, we're not going to allow Parler to be on there. So what do conservatives have to do? Build their own smartphone so that they can build their own app store? And then Parler is taken offline by Amazon Web Services which most people view Amazon only in the context of that place that you go when you want to get a book shipped to you or get a potato ricer at two in the morning or something delivered the next day. But Amazon's web service is actually the biggest, I think one of the biggest, if not the biggest hosting services for cloud computing in the world. Amazon Web Services is the backbone of, I think, NASA and Netflix and governments and huge companies, huge websites, Parler, no exception to that. So Parler's taken offline by Jeff Bezos, who's usually the most loathed man in the world to the left, but this week is now a big hero to the left because he's decided to take those evil conservatives away from their one online safe space. The one place where the left couldn't really cancel conservatives was on Parler. So, Parler now taken offline. So what do conservatives have to do? Build their own web hosting company. Well, great. It's not as easy as that. Amazon Web Services has warehouses and warehouses and warehouses full of servers. These data centers all over the world, including numerous in North America. So for conservatives to just say, all right, we'll build your own, is not an overnight process. And more importantly, I think it's lamentable that that's what society has become. The whole point of Build Your Own was actually built on a very dangerous idea. A correct idea, but a dangerous idea. And the idea that fuels the Build Your Own narrative is that the left and the right cannot coexist. 
Now, you may laugh at the idea that that could not be true. I wish it were, and it used to be true. When I mentioned that line of, I think, Margaret Thatcher about how your 80% friend is not your 20% enemy, there's something to that that we all need to learn from, which is that disagreement never needed to be and never should be a trump card. There are lots of people that I could break bread with that I don't agree on many things at all with, or people that I agree on some things with. But the idea of conservatives needing to, or anyone needing to build their own alternative to Facebook and Twitter was because Facebook and Twitter had demonstrated they were not interested in giving the same rights to people on the right as they were to people on the left insofar as their ability to use these platforms and services. Now, yes, Facebook is a free service, Twitter is a free service, Google's a free service, so if you're using all of these things, you don't have a right to them, and that's true. I don't say that you have a right to them. When I talk about what these companies are doing and I talk about censorship, I'm not talking about state censorship. I'm not talking about people being thrown into gulags by the Stasi or something like that. I'm talking about people who are in a lot of ways being censored by a cultural force that is so ubiquitous now, it is as strong as a state censorship could be in this day and age. And that's what's happening right now, is that a lot of people aren't even able to have these conversations. Because if you say, oh, well, you know, this is an attack on free speech, someone will be like, well, actually, it's not an attack on your free speech because you know what? You aren't being thrown behind bars. It's Bite me. Just bite me. You actually have no idea what you're talking about. Because legal free speech, which we have, we have in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, the right to freedom of expression. In the United States, there is a First Amendment. These freedoms are irrelevant if in practice there is no culture that supports them. Those ideas are enumerated in constitutions because it is paramount for governments to be restrained from limiting these rights. The problem is that the threat to these freedoms is not really coming from governments as much as it's coming from civil society, the group that is supposed to be welcoming these freedoms and using them every day. And the idea is it used to be that you could say to someone, ah, well, that's an attack on free speech, ergo it's wrong. Now people think free speech is this antiquated, archaic, patriarchal, racist, white supremacist concept. Free speech is only for people that are going to use their right to free speech to say the right thing. So the parallel society problem is very real because people are not interested in open platforms and genuine open fora where people on the left and people on the right can all talk about whatever they want and because they, they only want the uniparty. They want one side to have a monopoly on discourse and that is their own. Now, if it hasn't become apparent, I don't have an answer to this. I really don't. And even when I am seeing the libertarianism that I've always welcomed and embraced on this severely challenged, I still know that regulation is not going to make any of this better. Forcing social media companies to act in a different way is only going to make matters worse. It may make them look different, but in the long run, it's going to make them look worse. When people talk about the platform-publisher divide, that is not really something that matters all that much. But even in the absence of a solution, at the very least, people need to understand that if five companies, if someone at five different places decides that you don't deserve to exist, they have the power to wipe you off the face of the earth. 
And it isn't just about your social media. This is, I think, one of the big misnomers of it. It's not about Trump's right to tweet, which I don't even think this is about Trump anymore. And it hasn't been about Donald Trump for a long time. But because we're talking about Donald Trump's account, most of the people engaged in this discussion are only able to view this through the lens of their emotional hatred of Donald Trump. I don't care about Donald Trump's Twitter account right now because I care about Donald Trump tweeting. I care about it because I care about the precedent that this is setting for your Twitter account, for mine, for your Facebook, for mine, for your website, your email, your banking, your online store, whatever the case may be. And if you can't get over your hatred of Trump, of Parler, of the right, or your frustration with what happened on Capitol Hill, you're missing the big picture here, which is that five companies is what it takes to digitally deperson you. Now, in, in the most part, it's fewer than that. If you don't have an app, you don't need Apple and Google to necessarily deperson you. Twitter, Facebook, and Amazon can do it all by yourself. But let's look at this critically because Donald Trump was not just gone after by those, but also Shopify. Shopify, a Canadian company, went after Donald Trump uh, by taking the Trump Tower store offline, the Trump Organization store. Now, this wasn't the Trump campaign store. This was the Trump store that you would buy things that have the word Trump on them from. Like when I was at Trump Tower in New York a year and a half or two years ago, I bought a Tumblr mug. I bought a t-shirt. I bought uh, something else there. And I think I bought a Trump fidget spinner, which I, ha I should have brought it out for the show. But, but this is not anything controversial. This is not anything to do with President Donald Trump, nothing to do with Capitol Hill. But when Shopify uh, stepped in and they said, you know what, overnight, you no longer have the ability to buy anything from the Trump online retail outlet. Now that's significant. What if they went after someone that didn't have the money or the institutional backing of the Trump organization, which has the ability to rebound from this, I'm sure, despite a, a little bit of lost revenue. What if they went after someone else? Someone that didn't have the ability to fight through this. This happens all the time. People are told they can't use their PayPal accounts, which cuts them off from revenue streams. Imagine if one day Google said to you, you know what? We don't like what you've been doing. Your Gmail account is no more. Ah, it's one thing to not be able to tweet or Facebook, but what if you were denied access to your email account? And this is the problem with the build your own. The vast majority of people do not have the capacity to build their own email account on their own server that they control. I mean, I'm relatively tech savvy and I still use an email account provided by one of those free email account services as well as my work emails. But this is the problem is that you cannot feasibly build your own everything. And it's looking decreasingly possible or I guess increasingly impossible would be the better way to word it, that we can ever get over the hurdle to get to that cultural reality where everyone realizes, hey, let's lay down our arms and realize that this is not the world we want to be creating. And it's easy when the left is the cultural dominating force for the left to jump up and down and say, yeah, you know what, ban them, ban them, they're all Nazis, they're all white supremacists, they're all this. But if, if and when that shifts and the left no longer has the cultural hegemony, if you will, then all of a sudden, this precedent that they've set, 
that tech companies should actually be engaging in these issues the way they are, by censoring, by, dele by deleting, by deplatforming, by taking offline, then all of a sudden that will look very bad, which is why people, again, need to look beyond ideology on these things. So Parler is a company, it has investors, it has money, and Parler's business model is an app and a website that people use, which no longer is possible. So Parler's entire business model has been taken offline because of all of this. Now, the rationale for this, I, I should express a, a little bit of on, because the rationale is that companies are saying Parler's website was used for violence, to plan a, a violent Capitol Hill riot, and could be used for violence in the future. Now, I was very clear in my thought on what happened on Capitol Hill, and that hasn't changed. I still believe that, and if you don't like it, well, I'm sorry. As I said, I hope you like other things that I say, but, but I'm not changing on that one. But here's the thing. Parler exists as a platform for free speech. That is its MO. So all of a sudden, these companies that are saying they're platforms and not publishers are actually blaming a company and targeting a company for actually being an open platform. And there's something very twisted and ironic in that that the companies that claim they are platforms are actually mad at a company that genuinely is an open platform. And by the way, an open platform that still does not allow violent rhetoric. Parler does not allow users to uh, use the platform for criminal activity. That's one of the few rules that exists in the terms of service. Okay. Just because people have been able to screenshot violent things on Parler does not mean those things do not get yanked eventually under the terms of service in the same way that some stuff on Facebook and Twitter will get yanked as well. So there is something in this that I, I find to be quite concerning for everyone. It's not that I'm at all endorsing violent rhetoric, nor is Parler for that matter. It's that Parler is not distinct from all of these other platforms. And by the way, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, uh, these platforms have been used for terrorist activity. Terrorist attacks have been planned using chat messaging apps, yet those things are all fine. WhatsApp is still in the App Store. Facebook Messenger is still in the App Store. Facebook, Twitter, these things as well have entertained it just because they have policies to take stuff down doesn't mean they aren't still used for these things. So in, in that sense, the challenge put to Parler is that it's not good enough at censoring when Parler itself was saying that it actually was trying to get better on dealing with the stuff that was genuinely illegal. Genuinely illegal, illegal, not just violating these internal terms of services like Twitter's ban on dead naming or whatever the case may be. So I don't accept that a free speech platform is something that should be vilified because a free speech platform might attract some people that uh, not everyone wants to have a dinner party with. I think it's actually something that should be encouraged, though we don't have to like what people are saying to respect that they have a right to say it. That used to be the cornerstone of free speech. And again, I'm not talking about violent rhetoric. I'm not talking about speech that does cross that threshold of being criminal. I'm talking about undesirable, unpopular speech, speech that might be biased against you, speech that might be critical of you or of something you stand for. But that is part of freedom. 
And we can talk about this regulation, that regulation, this bill, that bill, but we're never going to get past what's happening right now if we don't understand that this problem is coming from a tremendously dangerous cultural reality, which is now being ratified and codified by this small cabal of big tech companies. We'll be back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. This is going to be a big week in the lockdown fight, another form of a battle we've been covering at great length on this show. And one of the big questions is whether Ontario is going to get a curfew, a la the one that was put in place in Quebec just a few days ago, in which we're already seeing arrests of people for, you know, just walking down the street, basically, doing something that used to be an activity you'd take for granted in a free society. So what the Ontario plan is is going to look like we don't yet know, but we do know that curfews are not respectful of the charter. They're not constitutional. And there was a great op-ed in the Toronto Sun about that, written by Dr. Matt Strauss and civil litigator Ryan O'Connor, who joins me on the line now. Ryan, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me, Andrew. So let's talk first off about why curfews are, in your view, not constitutional. So there are several sections of the charter uh, that apply to uh, uh, to curfews. Uh, first, every Canadian has the right to uh, free assembly and free association. So that's the right to gather and the right to attend a demonstration. Every Canadian has the right to liberty to go about their business as they see fit with certain constitutional uh, constraints. Um, so those are the main provisions of the charter that are breached when uh, when you can't leave your house between, uh, in Quebec's case, 8 p.m. and 5 a.m. This is something that I've found to be really concerning for two reasons. Number one is that it forces people just to live in a state of fear. You know, you're out and about, you might be out there a bit too long. It's like, oh my goodness, I got to get home before 8 p.m. lest I find myself afoul of the curfew. But it also forces a lot of other things to shut down. And this is what we've seen in Quebec, whereas it's not just about you can't leave your house. It's all of a sudden the government then has a mechanism to stop all of the things that you might do outside your house from happening, like making businesses close early and, and making other people really force uh, like force themselves to prove that they have a right to be out if they are one of those essential businesses. Well, that's the issue, too. I mean, uh, what was interesting about the uh, Quebec example is that when the um, curfew started on Saturday, they delivered a, a, an emergency alert message to everyone's phone saying you can't leave your house at all, which is actually incorrect. Interestingly enough, you're allowed. There are exceptions in Quebec. You're allowed to go walk your dog. You're allowed to, if you're an essential worker, go to work. Um, you're allowed to, uh, in the Quebec circumstance, you're allowed to travel the airport to go to Florida, uh, but you can't uh, walk around the block without a dog. Um, so it is, I, I think there is an attempt by government to sort of to demonstrate how you know serious the pandemic is. But at the same time, you can't um, uh, unfairly, inappropriately or arbitrarily restrict persons' charter rights in so doing. And I think that's that's the biggest issue. Um, and another issue, too, is the fact that there's very little little evidence to suggest that uh, that curfews are even effective in, uh, you know, in preventing viral spread. What is the government's defense of this? Because throughout the entirety of uh, the lockdown measures, we've been told that, you know, well, everything's falling under that, you know, catch-all reasonable limits category. Is this another one of these cases where the government would say, you know, the pandemic is really our trump card over these civil liberties concerns? 
Well, a government can't just say, well, there's a pandemic, therefore the charter is suspended. The, the reason why we have a charter of rights to protect our, our ancient and constitutional liberties is, is because governments will trample on them in times of crisis. So I think that the, all, this is all the more reason to talk about why the charter is breached. And the, and the government can't just simply say, well, this is a reasonable limit. Yes, all, all charter rights are subject to reasonable limits as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. That's the first uh, part of the charter. But, but those limits have to be uh, rationally connected. So that from the, uh, there has to be a rational connection between the charter breach uh, and, uh, you know, and the policy. Uh, there has to be minimal impairments. Um, there has to also be proportionality between the charter breach, uh, the uh, negative effects of the charter breach, pardon me, and the, and the positive benefits. Um, in, in a case like a curfew, a curfew to me is not minimally impairing. Um, you know, you can't go out for, a, you know, very few reasons after 8 p.m. Why does the curfew not start at midnight? Does the virus spread at 8 p.m.? Uh, but, uh, you know, but not at 7 p.m.? Um, it's really hard to understand uh, Quebec's rationale behind its uh, behind its restrictions. And and the, the significance of the restriction is important for any, uh, you know, if this is challenged in court, you basically cannot leave your house. That's the most extreme uh, imposition on Canadians' rights since the October crisis. So uh, the government may say, well, yes, everything's subject to, re uh, to Section 1 of the Charter, the Reasonable Limits Clause. But, you know, in a time of crisis, if you can't rely on the Charter to protect your rights, you know, it's really not worth the paper that's written on. If there were evidence backing up a curfew, and I, I know that's a big if because even Quebec's top doctor, as you, you've noted, uh, said there was very scant evidence on this. But would that be enough to overcome this? Or, or is your view that the charter breach, the, the freedom breach is too significant that even if it did have a, a marginal success at, at getting cases in check, it wouldn't matter? Well, the problem is, is the court is also going to look at, in, in the context of a challenge, whether or not the, uh, uh, the charter breach is, uh, is arbitrary or it's overbroad. You know, uh, large manufacturers, for example, in Quebec are, are exempted from the rules. So you can go to work at your large manufacturer. We've heard uh, evidence, at least in Ontario, and in other cases in Quebec, where there have been outbreaks at large industrial workplaces. So if the premise of uh, if the premise of the curfew is to prevent viral spread, it's not attacking the very places where viral spread is happening. So it's arbitrary. And then a, a law that is arbitrary doesn't survive uh, the reasonable limits clause of the charter. It's also overbroad. Um, a homeless person can't go for a walk around their mission or their shelter um, lest they face a $6,000 fine. A court is not going to look to uh, look too kindly on a circumstance where a homeless person is being fined $6,000 for walking around the block. Uh, or, you know, maybe they don't even have a place to go. They could be fined. And that's that's really problematic from a constitutional perspective. One of the big challenges that we've seen in some of the church challenges and other challenges of fines here is that there really isn't an ability to get a remedy uh, in time to really do anything about it. We've had people that are putting these challenges. I know a lot of them may not be heard or decided until the restrictions we hope end on their own. Is this going to be a, another case like that? Or do you think there is a possibility if something in Ontario is put forward that uh, there's an injunction application or, or some other measure that could be heard quick enough to make a difference? Well, courts will hear injunctions uh you know, fairly quickly in the circumstance, particularly at least in Ontario, you know, sometimes within a here an injunction a motion, pardon me, within two weeks of an application being started. Mm -hmm. We've seen with some of the religious services restrictions that from the time you start your proceeding until the time of the injunction, it can sometimes be as little as nine days. But the problem is, is that uh, it's very hard to get an injunction in the circumstance be essentially asking for uh, the court to uh, exempt you from the application of a law. But, uh, but 
the, the thing is, is that it, it seems as if lockdowns are going to continue beyond, at least in Ontario, they're supposed to end later on this month. Uh, looks like with the case counts, that's probably not going to happen. So I think there is an opportunity for a person to bring a challenge to whether it be a curfew, if a curfew is imposed in Ontario. Um, it might be that the curfew is uh, ongoing for a month or maybe more. Maybe lockdowns will go on all winter. Um, and in that case, there will be an opportunity for persons to challenge on an urgent basis these uh, these issues before the court. With curfews in particular, there, there almost is outside of the legal argument against them. There, there, there's something very chilling about them because this is actually that wartime mentality. And, and a lot of the other restrictions, some could argue, might have been a bit more incremental. But for me, this has been the one that I found the most unsettling, even though ostensibly it, it wouldn't affect my day-to-day life all that much. I, I very rarely leave home after 8 p.m. in general, let alone during the pandemic. But there is something very symbolic about it, too. Well, it's uh, it's symbolic that we, you know, the same government that has been lauding our healthcare heroes and our essential workers and our truckers, et cetera, those are the people who have to go to work past eight o'clock. A lot of people can stay at home and, you know, work from their home office and this won't affect them. But for those individuals that have been told that, you know, we rely on you, thank you for your service, those are the very people that are going to be being pulled over in their cars by the police on their way to the long-term care home. They're going to be individuals who are pulled over by the police on the way to go to the yard to pick up their truck to do an overnight delivery. So those very heroes that we've been talking, that government's been talking about, are the very individuals that are going to be targeted by, uh, by uh, frankly, the most appalling and chilling aspect of it. Yeah, you are right about that. And and the other aspect of this, too, that I, I found is that there are going to be people that I, I think genuinely are already dealing with lockdown issues. They are stuck in the home. Maybe they have just a really tiny apartment in Toronto and they don't have many opportunities to get away. Maybe someone works 12-hour days and they now don't have the ability to do anything. Like I could see a lot of people really falling through the cracks of this, or I, not even cracks, the craters yeah. of this, because there's a, a system in place that doesn't allow them to actually live their lives. Exactly. Like, you know, we think of we talk about COVID just, um, you know, in terms of case counts every day. But think of all of the other issues that COVID and lockdowns are causing uh, impacts on physical and mental health. It's illegal in Ontario, for example, to go to the gym. NHL athletes can go to the gym. Olympians can go to the gym. But regular Ontarians can't go to the gym. That has a real significant impact on mental health and physical health. And if you're worried about on your on your way to work because you're allowed to go to work, you're an essential worker. Or if you're walking your dog, which in the Quebec example is is legal. You're looking behind you constantly to see if there's a police officer in the vicinity. You're looking around you constantly to see if a bylaw officer is going to give you a ticket. Uh, That has a significant um, problem, Uh, may have a significant problem that you psychologically, if you have mental health issues, always looking behind your back like like it's a police state. And and that's, that's really problematic. Yeah, and I actually just read uh, this morning a a case of a Montreal family given $3,000 worth of tickets because they were on their way back from New Brunswick. And by the time they got into Quebec, I guess it was after 8 p.m. So they violated the curfew. And they're saying that they should have not been given that because they were in transit. But these sorts of stories are going to become more and more common. Sure. And when you give police discretion to apply a new law, you can never be certain that they're going to apply it in a way that is compliant with the law or compliant with the charter. Um, you know, and I don't begrudge police necessarily. They they have to do their job and they literally just received orders to enforce a law that was enacted last week. They may not be aware, individual officers may not be aware of the exceptions to the rules, such as walking your dog, et cetera. And there was video online from Saturday night that showed a gentleman who was walking his dog was set. Uh, you know, uh, pulled over by the police, mm-hmm. maybe because they don't know there's an exception. But the problem is when you give police discretion under a new law to apply it, 
um, you don't know that they're going to apply it in a way that's that's consistent with the charter or that um, is consistent with the exceptions. Yeah, very well said. The op-ed in the Toronto Sun, here's how curfews violate charter rights. One of the co-authors, lawyer Ryan O'Connor, joins me now. Ryan, thanks very much for coming on today and great work with this piece. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Just insane. And again, I mean, I said to Ryan there, like, I actually am not affected by this directly, but this is still one that I'm finding to be a lot more difficult than some of the other restrictions just because of the implications of it. You know, even something as simple as going for a walk, now you can't do if you want to take a nice little brisk, chilly walk after 8 p.m. Well, you're not allowed to. I, I did an interview with Ezra Levant on Rebel News last week, and Ezra had mused openly, thinking out loud in a way that I'm sure his lawyers love, about whether he should make like anyone in the country who wants to be a freelancer a rebel freelancer so he can just issue them one of those permits that your employer lawyer can give you to say you're serving an essential function. So uh, certainly I'll have to hope that uh, Candace Malcolm and the uh, the leadership team at True North let me out. I don't know about the rest of you, but uh, it sounds like Ezra has something cooking up there. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, I'd like to pay tribute to a very dear friend of mine that we lost this week. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to the Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back. Before we end things for today, I want to take a a few moments to say goodbye to a dear friend who passed away over the weekend after her battle with ovarian cancer, Kathy Shadle. She was a blogging pioneer. She started blogging more than 20 years ago, and most people weren't even using the internet, let alone reading blogs or writing blogs. She had her instrumental role in creating what became the Canadian conservative blogosphere long before all of the big tech censors started to run the show. And in doing so, she influenced a lot of people, and I include myself in that category. When I was reading her blog as a younger conservative, I thought, you know what, I could do that myself. Well, I couldn't. Not nearly as well as she could. But you know what, I tried anyway. And she was never anything less than encouraging. She became a supporter, a mentor, and eventually a friend. I had the great privilege of traveling with her on a couple of uh, different Mark Stein cruises where we were both speakers and appeared on a panel together both years. There's a picture of Kathy and I as well as our friend Tal Bachman and Mark Stein himself. Kathy was an agoraphobe in the most literal sense, except she didn't have a phobia in a clinical sense. She just didn't like going outside. She resisted for years getting a cell phone. She just never left home, she said, so she didn't need it. She loved her husband, her cats, and she loved what she did. And it wasn't just about politics, but it was about poetry. It was about music. It was about film. If you ever said anything bad about The Who, she would, I'm sure, gut you like a fish right there. But uh, she didn't need to use violence because her tongue was sharper than any weapon known to man. She was and is one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite people. And I know that she leaves a huge wake And the internet will not be the same, just as the lives of those who knew her will not be the same. I want to thank Kathy for helping me get my start in blogging, which led to podcasting and then doing talk radio and eventually back to podcasting and blogging. It's funny how the world works like that. I want to thank her for always being a supporter, not just of me, but of others I knew that reached out to her for advice and received it, whether they liked it or not, what they got. And I want to thank Kathy for always showing me the importance of the culture, 
She was uninterested in which politician was saying this or which politician was up in the polls or down in the polls because she understood that life was more than elected politics and partisan politics, and she didn't have time for the politicians. At a time when most people were looking at elections, she was not. She was looking at the culture, long before Andrew Breitbart even was doing so. Kathy was a trailblazer. She's known for her work, her writing, but she, to me, is known for herself. And I thank Kathy for everything. I miss her. I send my thoughts and prayers to her husband, Arnie, who survives her. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.